This is the third time in the Gospel of Luke that a Pharisee has invited Jesus over for dinner. They're curious about him. Who is this man who draws such large crowds and says such strange and provocative things? At the very least, they had to figure he'd be an interesting guy to have at the table. But Jesus proves to be more than just interesting when he humiliates all of the other guests and shames the host. In time, the Pharisees' curiosity will turn to outright hostility, thanks to occasions such as this. But Jesus is not interested in ingratiating himself with the privileged. Uh, For while Jesus lacks affluence, he has a great deal of influence and a kind of privilege all his own. And he intends to use it to ensure that everyone has a place at the table. This is taken from the Gospel of Luke. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down by the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then, in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they might invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we offer this prayer. Amen. Spoiled. Entitled. Privileged. Some people just think they're superior to everyone else. I was at a coffee shop last week with a member of this church that I meet with from time to time to talk about life and faith. This sort of thing is my favorite thing about being a pastor, just sitting across the table from someone, listening to their stories and sharing a few of my own, exploring existential questions and how the answers impact our lives. I'm theologically curious, that's what led me to the ministry in the first place, and I love exploring those avenues with fellow travelers along the road. 
On this particular day, though, I was finding it difficult to have a normal conversation. Thanks to the aforementioned spoiled, entitled, and privileged people in the room. You see, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and there was a gaggle of preteen girls standing just a few feet away from us, laughing hysterically at nothing in particular for quite a while. <laughs> I tried to focus on the soft-spoken voice of the man at my table, trying desperately to listen to what he was saying, but was drowned out by the nearby cacophony. At one point, I shifted my attention, annoyed, trying to understand what it was they were even talking about, but it was incomprehensible, like the warbly voices from a Charlie Brown cartoon. Now, I know, I know I sound like a grumpy old man, but you'll soon understand why. You see, as I turned my attention back to the guy I was talking to, I suddenly felt a sharp pain in my lower back as if someone had thrown a rock at me. The swell of nearby laughter grew even louder somehow, and when I looked at the floor to see what had struck me, I found a glazed chocolate donut hole. Yes, it's exactly what it sounds like. These adolescent girls had pelted me with a donut thrown it at my back without the slightest provocation. You know, people always talk about Glen Ellen like it's Mayberry, a, a serene portrait of Rockwellian Americana. But what kind of a town is it, really? When roving bands of adolescents throw donuts at clergymen in broad daylight. I looked at the glazed donut and my mind reeled, retreating to a memory of the last time I'd been assaulted with confectionery treats. <laughs> my recollections are often vivid, and I found myself sitting at a different table in 1994. The guy sitting across from me was James, and he was a punk, a scrawny Irish kid with dark circles under his eyes and an obnoxious grin that lets you know he was up to no good. He was shorter than me, shorter than most boys his age, but he understood the principles of social Darwinism far better than I did. He seemed to understand intuitively that if you were sent to prison, your best bet was to beat someone else up right away before they did it to you. Now, I didn't like James, but there we were at the same table in the high school cafeteria. It must have been really crowded that day because I can remember being squeezed in amongst some other students, and I would have sat anywhere else if I'd had a choice. But I just tried to keep my head down and stay out of trouble. But trouble seemed to find me more often than not, and I can still recall the moment that a fusillade of powdered sugar exploded on my chest, covering my black turtleneck sweater in white powder. I looked up and saw James looking at me with that stupid grin, a mountain of powdered sugar on his styrofoam plate, hoarded like a stockpile of munitions. Neither of us spoke a word, but as I glared back at him, he tossed some more at me, another volley splashing on my shoulder. I don't know where he'd gotten so much powdered sugar. They must have been serving fried dough that day, but it just kept on coming, soaring across the table and bursting in little white clouds all over my shirt until I was covered in the stuff. I could hear Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture in my head, or maybe it was Wagner's Flight of the Valkyries. 
either of them a suitable soundtrack for such a robust bombardment. But in truth, the scene was eerily silent. No one around the table spoke, and neither did I. No one had to. We all understood the pecking order, and no one envied my place at the table. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus lays bare the reality of our social hierarchy, namely that some people are just more privileged than others. Invited to a dinner party by one of the Pharisees, Jesus creates this extraordinarily awkward scene while folks are sitting down to eat, jockeying for a position near the head of the table and their influential host, Jesus calls them out. He says they ought to sit at the lowliest place at the table, a seat Jesus has presumably claimed for himself, so the hosts will invite them to move up. For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, Jesus remarks, and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. You see, Jesus had some privilege, too, enough to get invited to dinner parties. Yes, he was broke, but he was also part of a majority ethnic group, and he was extremely influential, a little bit of a local celebrity. And while he could have used that privilege to keep on moving up in the world, he used it to help other people move up instead. Friends, for a long time, I thought I had a lousy place at the proverbial table. Wherever I sat, I felt belittled, small. I sat there for years, just waiting for someone to call me up in the world. And when people began talking about privilege in earnest a few years ago, white privilege, male privilege, heteronormative privilege, I confess that I got a little bit defensive. I certainly didn't feel privileged. Sure, I was a straight white man, still am as a matter of fact, but I didn't always have it easy. I grew up in an old factory town, a place where the middle class looks a little more threadbare. The other kids made fun of me and threw stuff at me as I've already described, and I didn't have many friends. As I got older, I had to take out massive student loans to pay for college and graduate school. And for a while, I rented a room on Finch Street in New Haven for $300 a month and shared a bathroom with six other guys that I'd never met. I subsisted in those days on ramen noodles and cans of chili that I stored in my dresser right next to the sock drawer. But I had come a long way from there by the time people started talking about privilege. I'd worked hard, I'd proven myself, pulled myself up by the bootstraps, and it wasn't always easy. But what I didn't realize was that I'd still had it easier than almost everyone else. Maybe I wasn't sitting at the head of the table, but as Jesus reminds us in this text, a lot of people aren't invited to the table at all. I'd had advantages that I'd always taken for granted. I wasn't accustomed to fine cuisine, but I always had something to eat. I'm hardly the most athletic guy around, but I've always been relatively healthy. Sure, I'm up to my eyeballs in debt, but I still had the chance to earn a master's degree. Yes, I was a bit socially awkward, but I was never ostracized because of the color of my skin. And yeah, the dating scene was often complicated and heartbreaking growing up. 
but I was never vilified by society for falling in love with another man. If everyone in the world is sitting together at a long table with, I don't know, influential billionaires at one end and some kid scrounging on the streets of Calcutta at the other, I can't deny that my place at the table is a privileged one. A couple of years back, I was having dinner at Morton's Steakhouse in Chicago. It's not the sort of place I would ever go by myself. I'm happy enough at Steak and Shake. But I was invited by the University of Chicago to join a clergy cohort that was intended, as they put it, to cultivate the pastoral imagination. I still don't know what that means, but the program was funded by a foundation with deep pockets, and they frequently took us out to dinner at these lavish restaurants where I'd cultivate my pastoral imagination with filet mignon and a $45 glass of scotch. At this particular meal, the organizers had invited a distinguished professor from the university to join us. I don't remember his name, honestly, or even his area of expertise, but I recall that he engaged us all in a philosophical debate about the nature of absolute truth. All truth is relative, he argued as he sipped his glass of Merlot. What's true for you might not be true for me. Now sitting next to me and across from the professor was a colleague of mine, another UCC pastor, who also happened to be an African-American woman and a lesbian. And what about racist and homophobic ideologies, she asked him pointedly. Are those relative to? Is the lynching tree relative, a matter of opinion? Or can you admit that it's just plain wrong? Those things are unfortunate, he muttered a little uncomfortably. But while you and I think racism is abhorrent, moral concerns are still relative to the human perspective. If a tornado levels a town, we call it bad, he concluded. But nature has a different point of view. The steak is amazing, I interjected with my mouth full, <laughs> scarcely paying attention to the conversation. It was so tender, so delicious, and they were just beginning to pass around a plate of those little bacon-wrapped dates. So freeze the frame and imagine the scene, and you'll see a portrait of privilege. One black woman trying to share the pain of her experience, flanked by two white men. One of them is trying to convince her that she's wrong, while the other, me, is too busy stuffing his face with delicacies to notice. And that's what privilege affords the ones who have it, the ability to ignore or even to denigrate the ones who don't. It was only when I turned to look at her and saw her lip trembling, a little moisture in her eye, that I realized I should have been paying more attention. It's uncomfortable admitting our privilege. It's easy to get defensive about it when we've suffered too. And we all have in some way or other. But most of us here in Glen Ellen have a lot of privilege, some more than others. As a straight white man with a literal pulpit, I've got privilege coming out of my ears. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's just something to recognize so that we can do something productive with it. And as the stories I've shared illustrate today, privilege affords us three choices. 
The girls in the donut shop, the kid in the cafeteria, and the professor at the steakhouse, they all used their privilege to tear someone else down. Presented with a chance to break bread, they picked it up and lobbed it across the table at someone without the resources to fight back. And it happens every day when wealthy politicians use their podium, their pulpit, to criticize and denigrate people at the bottom of the social strata. Now the second choice that privilege affords, as I illustrated personally, is to look away. When you're privileged, you don't have to engage with other people's problems. You can enjoy your life without being dragged down by someone else's baggage. It's all academic, really, theoretical. What's it to you? But the third choice, friends, and it must be our choice if we are serious about following Jesus, the third choice is to use the privilege we have to lift up others, to advocate for the marginalized, to make room for them at the table, to give up your seat so that they can enjoy a place of honor, to speak up on their behalf, to invest in their future, to fight for them, for everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, Jesus reminds us. And everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. We are about to gather at this table where all are welcome, where we humble ourselves and exalt one another. Truly, I tell you, there is no greater privilege. Amen.